Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. I trust and hope that you are all well. Before I get started, I would like to give a very special shout-out to the Patreon members. Victoria Huggins, Tina Mee, Tavia S., Nancy Wallace, Mana Ash, Inner Scare Wifey, Felicia Scott, Cindy Cleveland, and House of Jen. The other members will be right here on the screen. Thank you all so much for being a part of the new membership. If you would like to become a member of Back to Ashes here on YouTube or join the Patreon family or support me by buying me a coffee, all that information can be found in the description below. With all of that being said, it is time to go back to ashes. For when we arise from the ashes, we are a bigger, brighter, stronger, and happier person in the morning. So, sit back, relax, kick back, grab a snack, or tuck in and get warm and enjoy this dose of vocal melatonin entitled True Backwoods creepy stories. Right after this introduction, an ad will play. I'll read the first story, another ad will play, and then there will be no more ads within this video. So, I moved to East Tennessee about two years ago now, and the state is absolutely gorgeous. Waking up every morning to a beautiful sunrise and going to sleep, actually being able to see the stars is great. Since I lived in a city before I came here. Anyways, ever since I moved here with my now husband, I've been having some odd encounters and experiences with something here. Not really sure what it is, but here's a basic rundown of what it does. It scratches and knocks at the back door closest to the woods, mimics voices, freaks our cat out to the point to where he doesn't act like himself, scratches on the wall closest to our bed, thumps on the floor, and gives us terrible nightmares. We live in his childhood home, and he said he's been dealing with this thing for a while now, and to be very careful if I were to go up into the ridge by myself. I've been up there a few times, and every time I did... I got a very uneasy feeling, like eyes on the back of your head or a predator watching you closely kind of thing. I think I was closest to it when we had to bury a few baby rabbits of ours that had passed away. It was dark and started to rain, but I didn't want to just yeet them into the woods since I hand-fed them and had a bond with them. Me and the hubby were close to the tree line when I heard something pacing back and forth in it. I couldn't see it, but the leaves rustling and the presence alone told me what it was. I was spooked, but I kept digging since I wasn't just going to leave them in a shallow grave. Whatever it is never popped out, but sat pacing the whole time. No growls or anything, just movement. Any ideas on what it could be? I don't think it's a skinwalker or wendigo or... Maybe it's a demon? Anyone else have encounters with a being like this? This happened to me a few years ago. Long story short... I was walking my dog at night when I saw in the forest, lit up by the orange street lamps, what looked like a deer standing up. But when I looked at its head, I couldn't understand its face, as in, its head and face 
was sort of shrouded in darkness, as if my mind couldn't comprehend what it was seeing. Strange, but explainable. Last night, years after the encounter, nothing strange had happened up to now. I was sleeping. My bedroom is situated facing the road, with my windows open. I am normally a deep sleeper, but I woke up to the loud sound of bird noises. At first, I thought nothing of it, simply birds calling in the middle of the night. But over time, I noticed something. It's hard to describe, but it sounded as if about every five seconds or so, there would be a different bird call. And the calls weren't different sounds, as in certain birds make different pitched noises or hoot, etc. Instead, it was the same whistling noise. Not like a whistle blowing, but instead like the noise a songbird would sing, but in different arrangements, for an hour straight. It was very loud, loud enough that I covered my head with two pillows and was still awoken. It was just repeating the same 50 different calls or so in the same order. It was as if one type of bird was imitating the different calls it heard over and over in the same order. The noise was about 25 feet away, coming from the thicket next to my house. There was no sound but the calling noise. No crickets chirped, no frogs called. Hell, no cars drove through the neighborhood. I also faintly remember the smell of rotten eggs, but this may have been a trick my panic mind played on me. Eventually, it stopped and I fell back asleep, terrified. I had kept my eyes tight shut. I woke up again about 15 minutes later, hearing the sound seemingly further away, down the street, but again in the same exact order. Then, later through the night, I heard the noise again, either in the same spot as before and louder, or right outside my window. I faced away from the window and kept my eyes shut, horrified but in such a tired state that I simply stayed put, not able to think of anything else. What the hell was that? Does anyone have an explanation for this? I know my description may sound strange, but it's hard to put into words. All I know for sure was that it was not natural. This wasn't a bird, or crickets, or a frog. No. It was something else. This was about five years ago. Me, my mom, and my dad were camping at Mary Jane Thurston State Park just outside Grand Rapids, Ohio. It was around the end of August, the beginning of September. Our campsite was in the front part of the camping grounds. Leading up to the two separate incidents, we occasionally heard what we thought could have been a bird of some kind screaming or screeching up in the trees or at least it sounded like it was coming from atop of the trees. We'd hear it almost every night, but in a different location. We'd hear it in the trees behind us one night, 
Then the next night, it would come from the other end of the campgrounds. Then, the night after, we'd hear it from across the road. I've listened to the sounds of different animals, including owls, to see if that was the noise we heard, but nothing is even close. Occasionally, we'd hear what sounded like branches being snapped, but thought nothing of it. I had my own tent, and that detail is somewhat important as it factors into the second incident. The first incident. My dad woke up in the middle of the night to what sounded like someone was rummaging through the ice chest which was sitting between our tents. He said he then heard whoever or whatever it was shut the cooler and walk away. He told me and my mom about it the next day. The odd thing was that nothing was missing from the cooler. The second incident. It happened the night after the first one. I had a little small TV and my game console in my tent. I was watching a movie when I heard something approach our campsite. Whatever it is went through the cooler again. I could hear the ice moving around as it was rummaging through the cooler. I was as still and as quiet as possible, but whoever, or should I say, whatever it was, knew I was awake because it decided to put its massive hand on the side of my tent and push it in. I was frozen with fear and didn't know what to do. It felt like forever, but was only about 20 seconds before it took its hand from the tent and walked away. I didn't think about looking for tracks the next day. We don't have bears in this part of Ohio, so I definitely know it wasn't a bear. This thing didn't take anything from the ice chest, despite going through it twice. I know when it put its hand on my tent and pushed it in a little, I was frozen with fear. We know it wasn't some homeless person or anyone else because there was maybe five campsites that had anyone, and they were in the back part of the campground. To this day, we still can't figure out what was on the outside of my tent. This didn't happen in the back deep woods or anything. However, it was a campout my best friend and I were having about 20 years ago. I have quite a few stories that happened my 10 plus years living in this neighborhood, but this by far was my creepiest encounter. Here is my story. Hi, I grew up in southern New Hampshire, and I had some interesting times in East Derry. I grew up on a cul-de-sac with a police captain and a detective as my neighbors. A lot of weird and strange things happened while living there, most connected to the house itself. I had a type of shadow person. It would take the shape of my family members. And years after moving from that house, my older brother would tell me, whatever it was liked you. Which brings us to one of my many stories. My best friend lived five houses from me, and her parents owned a pop-up camper. It was located to the side of their porch, which had the door that the family used as a main entrance. 
Being the young 12 to 14 year olds we were, we had many sleepovers in it with other kids in the neighborhood. We had a few experiences and I will tell you the most haunting one of them. This night, it was just her and I. We're both girls and at that age, we would bicker over the dumbest things. This night, it was her throwing a piece of gum to me and it getting lost between one of the mattresses and the lining of the camper. She wasn't willing to give me another piece which led to us butting heads. We were bickering back and forth about her giving me another piece when we both went dead quiet. All of a sudden, we both heard what sounded like footsteps walking around the camper. Then came the talking. I don't know how to describe it other than it being right there, like a whisper, but still sounding so distant. It was male, and we could not make out what it was saying. It was in another language. We looked at each other with concern, and I remember her taking off her socks. They were fuzzy, new, and mine. At that moment, we jumped up and made the 15-foot sprint to that side door, went inside and up the stairs to her room while grabbing the house phone on the way. Her parents were drunks, so we didn't wake them. Instead, we did the only rational thing and called my house. My mom ended up driving around the neighborhood two times, only to call us back and tell us she saw nothing. We were so freaked out that we slept on the floor next to each other. Where we slept was under the window that overlooked her front yard. I'm not sure when we fell asleep, but before we did, we both remember hearing the sound of raking and digging. This happened 20 years ago, and me and my best friends still talk about it every day. A lot of weird stuff takes place in Derry. This is not quite backwoods, but someone requested a non-American story, and this happened in Norway. So, here we go. Before I get started, sorry for the bad translation and such, but this is a true story that took place around 2003, and I would appreciate any comment that can shed light over what happened. Some information. I'm from Oslo City. And when I was a teenager, we moved to a bit more remoted place about 30 minutes outside the city. Mostly houses and woods. And moose, badger, fox, wolf, and lynx were all around. But mostly lots of road deers, who are way used to humans. No farms and stables in the nearby area. No homeless people and the teens who snuck out usually hung around the mall to still fresh-delivered Napoleon cake from the bakery's loading dock. We lived quite central by the mall, school and such. There was a small forest behind our house, maybe a five-kilometer radius. One summer, two friends and I went camping for one night in the small forest. We were 14- and 15-year-old girls. There was a bonfire place about 100 meters from my house where we would put up the tent the ground is packed tight and has this hollow sound when you walk on it. The tent was big for three and kind of round, 
so it would be hard for someone to reach the top without collapsing on the tent wall. And it was an old tent, and the fabric was quite rotten. It did not rain that night. We did not bring any food or food equipment, except candy that we had inside the tent. What happened? We set up gossiping and eating candy until midnight. When we tried to sleep, we heard hooves walking beside the tent. We laid still, listening. Pretty sure there were curious road deers. But... It was also this rattling sound of metal that seemed weird. Not like tin cans, but just like night armor sounds from the movies. Suddenly, it started to blow up with strong wind and we started talking to ease the atmosphere. The hooves and metal sound reminded me of a knight on a horse. Then my friend said, That sounds like two knights. We brushed it off as road deers, but we never heard them leave. We kept talking when suddenly the wind ripped open a huge gash in the middle of the tent roof, right above me, and strong light, can only describe it as lightning, came through the opening. We screamed and the wind stopped, and the light disappeared as quickly as it came. We didn't hear anything around us. It was dead silent. No sound of footsteps or hooves. No sound of helicopters or anything. We just looked at each other and panicked. We jumped out of the tent and ran to my place for the rest of the night. We went back the next morning and took down the tent and looked around. We found nothing that could help us figure out what had happened. We did not drink or take drugs that night. My parents slept, so it couldn't be them messing with us. I've been much around in this little forest in my teens. I've never experienced weird things before or after. In the aftermath, we nervously landed on some kind of rare lightning and rode deers with one foot in a metal can. But we didn't believe that, either. If any of you happen to have any suggestions as to what this is, I would gladly appreciate some insight. So, this story isn't all that scary once you find out what's going on in the end, but it was very unsettling at the time. This is, however, a very true story. This happened last summer. My husband's best friend flew out from L.A. to visit us in rural Iowa. My husband grew up in L.A., but I was raised here, and this is where we decided to settle down. We wanted to give our friend the full royal small town experience. And one thing you don't realize when you're from the city is how completely pitch black it is out here with no street lamps or city lights to illuminate the night. It's something my husband commented on when he first moved here. There is a dense forest that covers several square miles just outside of town. It's a protected wildlife reserve. There are a lot of legends about this forest being haunted because it was the site of a bloody battle between Native American tribes and also a burial ground. 
The creepy old stone tower and dilapidated amphitheater in the middle of the woods are said to be especially haunted. There is also a pond in the heart of the forest that the locals refer to as Dead Man's Lake because somebody drowned in it several years ago and the body was never recovered. I'm not sure if it was accidental or a suicide. I've heard many different renditions of the story. I don't believe in ghosts, and I'm not afraid of the dark or the woods, but my husband's friend does. This park technically closes at 10 p.m., but we decided to risk it and took our friend into the forest at midnight on a moonless night at that. We visited the first tower. I've never seen it at night, and the sight of its black silhouette against the starry sky surrounded by gnarled dead trees, was an unsettling one that set the mood for the rest of the night. After a little convincing, we got our friend to follow us into the tower, up the old creaky spiral staircase. We spent some time surveying the surrounding scenery and enjoying our view of the clear night sky from the tower's rooftop lookout. The view was magnificent, and I thought it looked magical, but our friend just seemed to be getting more nervous by the second. We hiked back down the long dirt trail to the car, but kept hearing what sounded like footsteps coming from the trees on both sides, and from behind us. Our friend was scared it could be something paranormal. I was worried about drug dealers or meth heads, since there is a large population of sketchy people and frequent meth lab busts in this area. My husband and I had our 9mm pistols strapped to our belts, but we didn't want to have to use them. We picked up our pace back to the car and drove further into the forest, to the place where the trail to the old amphitheater begins. Our friend was really on edge now since the trees are much denser in this part of the forest and it is incredibly dark. We convinced him to follow us down the steep, rocky trail to the amphitheater. When we arrived, I noticed a tall structure standing in the center of the amphitheater that was never there before, but it was too dark to tell what it was. I had been using only the light of my smartwatch to guide my way, so as not to ruin the eerie illusion created by the inky darkness of the forest with a flashlight beam. At this point, even my husband was becoming uneasy and wanted to turn back, but I had to know what that mysterious object was, which had appeared in the last two days since my last hike to this part of the forest. I carefully made my way down into the center of the arena and drew closer to the structure my husband and our friend following closely behind. When I was a couple feet away from the object, I lifted my wrist to illuminate it with the light from my watch, and I felt a sense of dread and fear wash over me. Standing before me was a ten-foot-tall wooden arch wrapped in red silk and adorned with animal bones and red roses. The skull of a deer with massive antlers was mounted at its peak. A smaller object that sat lower to the ground that I hadn't seen before looked to be some kind of stone altar 
Suddenly, the rustling noises coming from the forest on all sides that I had previously chalked up to animals or the wind seemed much more threatening. My first thought was that a malicious cult or band of Satanists were lying in wait to sacrifice us to a demon, as ridiculous as it sounds. But in that moment, it seemed possible and very likely. All three of us jumped and turned toward the direction of our car when we heard a car door close and saw the faint glow of headlights peeking through the trees. We rushed back up the trail, expecting to find some crackheads attempting to break into our car. We didn't know whether to be relieved or apprehensive when we saw a DNR truck parked next to our car and the officer scanning the trees with his flashlight. He greeted us and asked what we were up to. We told him that we were showing our friend around, and he informed us that the park was closed. He noticed our firearms and asked for our permits and IDs, which we gave him. He went back to his truck to run our info and returned minutes later with an $80 ticket for being in the park past closing. After that, we spent about 15 minutes having a friendly chat with the officer when he asked, So what's the amphitheater like at night? I told him it was really creepy and proceeded to describe what we had witnessed. The officer chuckled at the terrified looks on our faces and told us that a Wiccan couple had rented out the amphitheater for their wedding tomorrow and had been by today to decorate. So, a bit of a disappointing ending. I was relieved at first, but also disappointed. I plan to return to the forest on another dark night, but this time I'll go alone, and I'll go in on foot so the DNR can't find me. I've mentioned this story quite a few times when people have asked for it, so, again, I hope you enjoy this story. Location is a campground that may or may not be currently accessible. I know it was closed, gated off from the road, for quite a while, a good few years ago. Factory Shoals Campground, a good 20 minutes outside of Covington, Georgia. Yes, that's where they filmed the Vampire Diaries. Anyway, Factory Shoals Recreation Area, the campground. I'll say that I've never seen many other people out at this huge park, even on the nicest days. But a friend lives in a subdivision down the road. The area is sporadically rural, if that makes sense. You'll come across a school, a gas station, and a pretty big neighborhood, but nothing else for another six or seven minutes down the road. The campground is next to the Alcove River. In order to reach it, you have to drive through Newton Factory's Cemetery, an old cemetery with mostly older graves sitting on the side of the road, slightly hidden by trees, smack dead in the middle of nowhere. I've often wondered about this. The graves date back to the 1800s, maybe illegible ones or even older, and at some point somebody says, hey, Let's put a road through the cemetery and create a campground. So you go down this janky road through the cemetery about a quarter mile, and here you are, 
barely managed campground. There's maybe seven sites, mostly next to the river. I'm with a friend. It's a nice evening. The light bustling of the river is calming. There's only one other site occupied a bit down. No street lamps. The only light you have is the fire and your flashlight. So, when we're headed to bed, fire extinguish, it's pitch black. You can see the stars. There must not have been a moon that night. I'm laying down and close my eyes and realize it's too damn quiet. Deafening silence. I jump back up and go to my friend's tent and tell her I'm suddenly feeling creeped. We both realize the bugs and even the river has gone silent. To be fair, the river is only about eight feet across and about two feet deep here. We had commented on the peaceful lull of the river all through the evening. With curiosity stronger than fear, we walked over toward the water and observed a mist or fog lifting from the water. We are a little anxious and don't want to get right up on the bank to see if we can see the water moving. So my friend remembered a light-up fishing lure type thing she has in her bag, fetches it, tosses it in, and it just sits there. It doesn't flow down. So it's like the river came to a complete stop in its movement, is releasing a thick mist, and it's completely dark and silent, except for that lure and its faint red glow barely visible through the thick mist. We both kind of start muttering that we should maybe pack up quick and leave before I see the spark and hear a gun firing not 15 feet away from us, shine a light for a split second before we both are in the car. It's cranked, and we're tearing out of there. I didn't see anyone either from shining my light or from the headlights, and I about had a panic attack coming through the cemetery. After that, with the elongated shadows from headstones and monuments. I didn't sleep that night, even after crashing on my friend's couch. Logic tells me the quiet could have come from a prowling human with a gun. But the mist and a river current stopping? And what if the who or whatever followed us? I didn't even gather my tent and sleeping bag before going home the next day. I luckily had placed my bag in my car for some reason instead of taking it inside. So my only loss was the small old tent and the sleeping bag, a battery-powered lantern, and a camp chair. So it's maybe a year later, and I'm in the area with my husband, and he doesn't believe me about a campground on the other side of a cemetery. It's midday, and I decide to show him, pull up, See that the road is now blocked off beyond the graves with a sign that states the campground is currently closed. We get out a minute to walk around the cemetery. It's a dirt road. There's a lot of kicked up dust settling. So much so that my husband asks if there's water in my trunk. He's coughing. I go to get it, cursing under my breath at the thick layer of settled dust already on my precious sports car and notice a very clean and distinct fresh tiny handprint on my trunk. It had to be fresh because I stood there and watched the still settling dirt start to stick and fill it in. We never made it more than a few feet from the car. There's nobody else out there. Again, we book it out of there. 
I know there's a legend about parking cars on hills in certain areas at night, and you'll find little handprints on the back and your car will have moved. My car didn't move, but these were legit, fresh little handprints. I'm not sure if the cemetery brings playful souls. The entire area holds on to some type of energy. Or there's just some incredibly sneaky people that hang out in minimally trafficked woods and back roads. I'll reiterate that this is part of a park, a recreational area that has grills and picnic tables about three minutes down the road. And I never saw anyone there the few times I visited aside from my friend, husband, or the other tent I saw further down the river when we tried to camp. I've never gone back. I've been to other places in Newton County, though, that give off similar vibes. The Alcovey Trestle, Gaither Plantation, a random church smack dead in the middle of the woods, that creepy old gas station. That's my story. The summer of 2008 was a rough time to graduate from college. I had just spent four years getting a degree, only to find that the job market had all but dried up. As bummed out as I was about being unemployed for the foreseeable future, I found a deep appreciation for backcountry camping and hiking that summer. Growing up in the Rocky Mountains and graduating from a college in western Montana, I was not a stranger to hiking or camping. But that summer, it became an escape to the point of an obsession. Going on daily hikes and camping beneath the stars really helped my mental health while I worried about my life's purpose and my future. It was June and unseasonably cold, wet, and cloudy. The daytime highs barely reached 50 degrees, and at night it dropped below freezing. Despite the weather, I had planned to hike around the Anaconda Range that week, and I wasn't going to let that deter me. My plan for the week, funny enough, was to hike from Storm Lake, over Storm Lake Pass, and down to Upper Seymour Lake. Storm Lake actually an alpine reservoir, is a challenge to get to and requires a 4x4 pickup and some skilled driving. The road is a narrow two-track winding its way through thick pine forests. The way was slick with rain, but I made it to the top with little heartburn. I set up camp on the north shore of the lake and decided to do some fishing. The fishing was miserable. It was cold and nothing was biting. But the best thing about bad fishing is that my thoughts were free to wonder while I sat on the shore. The rain was a constant light drizzle and created a natural white noise. Time passed and my daydreams were cut short as a low rumble from up the canyon overtook the sounds of the rain. The rumbling was not unlike a distant diesel engine. There are no roads that go beyond where I was camped. No machinery or vehicles could be up that canyon. Maybe it's a plane, I thought, looking up into the rain clouds. But the sound wasn't getting closer or further away. 
and the sound wasn't above me. It came from beyond the lake and up into the canyon. The sound was stationary and constant. This was most certainly not a plane, or truck, or a bulldozer. All of this wasn't outright scary, but nonetheless, my hair stood on end while I sat there listening. After 20 minutes, the rumbling faded away, and I was left again with only the sound of raindrops. Soon enough, I caught a decent-sized trout, cleaned it, and headed back to camp to get ready for dinner. The fish cooked up fine, but to be honest, I hate trout. It's edible, sure, but totally unappetizing. They taste like mud. I ate as much as I could stand and tossed the rest into the lake. Building up my fire for the night, I sat back to enjoy the evening with a bit of whiskey. Night came fast. The mountain ridges put the sun to bed early, and the rain clouds obscured the starlight. It was dark, and I do mean really dark. The sounds of a crackling warm fire and the rain bouncing off my tent were a great comfort and started to lull me to sleep. I reminded myself I needed to build up the fire before bed. I walked over to my pile of scavenged wood and grabbed an armful. Being away from the fire's crackling, I could pick up that all-too-familiar rumbling rising in the background. It was growling louder than before, and closer. I may have had a few too many pulls of whiskey and was tired and grouchy. This noise was ruining my camping trip and my buzz. Frustrated, I yelled into the blackness of the night. Hey, shut the hell up, butthole. Like a switch being flipped, the rumbling stopped. And so did the rain. My heart skipped a beat. I realized that was not a convenient coincidence. There was an intelligence out there. Something sentient. Observing me and responding to my screams. And I wasn't getting the most positive vibes from it. I threw all the logs on the fire and retreated back to my tent. More on edge than ever, I just sat there, listening. Listening to the fire crackling, to my rapid breathing, and beyond that, to the silence of the darkness. Before this moment, I had felt alone but safe. Now I felt alone and vulnerable. Beyond where the firelight faded, I felt there were a million eyes in that dark watching me. My paranoia began to subside when the rain suddenly started again. Not a drizzle, but a massive downpour. I was glad I had built up the fire, or it would have been snuffed out for sure. My tent was being pushed down by the force of the storm. I thought about bailing to the truck, but knew I'd be soaked to the bone instantly. Risking injury or death over getting wet is the kind of logic only whiskey can produce. I could feel the rainwater pooling and moving under my tent. This storm wasn't letting up. The urge to get in the pickup and drive away was ever more tantalizing. 
I could get my stuff tomorrow in the daylight and spend a few nights in town. But I'd had a bit much to drink. Driving, especially on that slick, muddy, two-track road, would have been a death sentence. But I still needed a safer place to sleep than a wimpy tent. Grabbing what I could, I ripped open the tent flaps and ran for the truck. I was soaking wet by the time I settled into the driver's seat and locked the doors. Turning the heat on full blast, I hoped that would dry me out. It was going to be a miserable night, though. I reclined my chair and tried to calm my thoughts with deep breaths. The rain wasn't letting up. I was warm from the heater, and I was riding the crest of a good whiskey buzz. The fire was still raging despite the rain and kept the campsite well lit. I remember the truck's clock reading 1.06 a.m. I blinked. It was only a moment, but when I opened my eyes, the rain had stopped. It was foggy and quiet. The once raging campfire was just embers, and there was morning twilight to the east. The truck's clock now read 5.45 a.m. It was morning. That couldn't be right. Almost five hours gone in the blink of an eye. I must have passed out. My head was killing me. I didn't feel like I had drank that much to justify that kind of hangover. I turned off the truck and stepped out to survey the night's damage. My tent was completely flattened. The tent poles were shattered to pieces. Everything was soaking wet. Smothering the remains of the fire, I dragged all my junk to the pickup and tossed it into the bed. My hike over the pass wasn't happening today, that was for sure. It was around 6.30 a.m. before I finished picking up camp. As I climbed into the cab of the truck, I heard the rumbling again through the morning fog. I drove out of there as fast as I could down that muddy, bobsled track of a road. Not once looking in the rearview mirror. I have never been back to Storm Lake, and I probably never will. Rock Island is a state park located at the tip of Door County, Wisconsin on Lake Michigan. It's a difficult place to get to. To get to the island, you have to take a car ferry from Ellison Bay to Washington Island, drive across Washington Island to Jackson Harbor, then take a pedestrian-only ferry to Rock Island. No vehicles or bikes are allowed on Rock Island. Even though the island is relatively small, at about 975 acres, it has had an interesting history. In the early 1600s, it was inhabited by a tribe of Potawatomi Native Americans, as well as a small fishing village of European settlers. The two groups did not trust each other, and did have a few bad encounters that almost led to violence. But for the most part, they lived peacefully together on the island. By the 1640s, the Potawatomi had migrated to other parts of Wisconsin. Shortly after the Potawatomi had left the island, some settlers from the fishing village reported seeing a new group of people on the island. They seemed to be more white settlers 
but they wore strange clothes and kept to themselves. No one from the fishing village was ever able to talk to one of these new settlers, or even find where they were living. It was around this time that strange things started to happen in the village. Several animals, it's not mentioned what they were, maybe it was pigs or chickens kept by the settlers were found slaughtered in the village and seemed to have been used to make markings in blood on some of the buildings in the village. On a different night, a building used for preserving meat burned down. The villagers felt that these things must have been done by these new people on the island, and they intended to find them. But after a thorough search of the island, including the wooded inland area, they never found a single person. These strange occurrences seemed to stop soon after the search, and none of the other settlers were ever seen again. In 1836, the Potawatomi Lighthouse was built on the northern part of the island. After construction was finished, the lighthouse was inspected, and it was reported back that the material of which the lighthouse and dwelling are made are of the best quality, and that the work is done in a substantive and workmanlike manner. David E. Corbin was appointed the first keeper of the light on December 19, 1837, only three years later in 1840, despite the apparent quality of construction of the lighthouse. David Corbin started to complain that plaster started to fall off the building and some sort of liquid would ooze through the cracks, leaving the house constantly damp. Corbin was completely alone most of the time at the lighthouse, and some have said when visiting him that he would stare at a certain wall and sometimes spoke vaguely of the other visitors. In 1845, after eight years of relative solitude at the lighthouse, an inspector visited the lighthouse keeper and determined that while Corbin was fulfilling his duties, he was acting strange. The official report says the inspector ordered Corbin to take a 25-day leave of absence to find a wife to live with him at the lighthouse. However, some think that the inspector was startled by Corbin's mental state caused by years of solitude and thought it would be best that he spent some time away from the island. In 1852, Corbin repeatedly fell ill and died that December in the lighthouse. He was buried in a small cemetery just south of that lighthouse. The next lighthouse keeper also reported the surprisingly quick deterioration of the lighthouse. Some friends that had visited the new keeper say that he would talk of seeing strange things in the house at night, but he wouldn't elaborate on what he had seen. In 1858, after only 22 years of service, the original lighthouse was torn down, and a new one was built. From that point on, the lighthouse keepers were required to have an assistant keeper or a family with them at the lighthouse. No strange occurrences were further reported in the lighthouse logbook outside of strong storms and occasional shipwrecks except on January 20th, 1876. The keeper at the time, named Betts, reported that he saw two men attempting to row to the mainland from Washington Island. 
He wrote a terrible storm came up shortly after their departure, and they never made it to their destination. Over three months later, on May 3, 1876, Betts wrote, The two men who were lost last January had been seen several times, once from Caney Lighthouse and once from Jacksonport. The men were apparently frozen stiff, and sitting upright in the boat among a mass of ice. At last account, they were still adrift. There is not much hope that they will be found and buried. By 1900, most of the island's inhabitants left for better fishing areas on Lake Michigan. In 1910, a successful business owner and inventor, Chester Thordeson purchased all of the island except for the land that the lighthouse occupied in the north. He used the island as a private summer retreat for his business in Chicago. Thordeson is responsible for the unique and mystifying buildings and structures that are still on the island today. On the south end of the island, he built a giant stone hall that has a boathouse on the lower level. A stone water tower was built on the east side of the island, and an imposing wood gate was constructed on the west end of the island. The Great Hall was used to store Thordeson's immense book collection. He had over 11,000 books, and it's rumored that he possessed some very rare books on the occult in his collection. Thordeson died of heart failure on January 6, 1945, though some have speculated that he saw something that actually scared him to death. I couldn't find any writings from Thordeson, however, that mentioned him experiencing anything strange on the island. After his death, multiple churches and universities were interested in his book collection, but he had willed it to the University of Wisconsin, Madison, providing that they had to purchase it for $300,000 which they did. Some of this history is hard to find on the internet, but there are a couple binders in the Great Hall that has a lot of this documented. Thordeson's personal papers are housed in the archive section of the State Historical Society of Wisconsin. All of this history I gave is just to provide a little context for experiences I have had, directly or indirectly, on Rock Island. In August of 2021, I took my first and last trip to Rock Island. After taking two ferry rides, I arrived on the island at about 2 p.m. I had booked the remote campsite E, which is a backpacking site that is a little over a mile from the dock. I took my time hiking out to the site to enjoy the scenery and took a couple breaks just due to how heavy my pack was. I was definitely packed more for camping than hiking. I got to my site, set up my tent, got everything situated, and started gathering sticks and driftwood from the beach so I could start a fire. On my third trip back from the beach, before I got back to my site, I heard a single high-pitched squill noise coming from the forest. It didn't sound close, but it was such an unusual sound that I stopped in my tracks and waited for a good 30 seconds, waiting to see if it would happen again. It didn't, so I continued back to my site. When I got back, 
I began working on getting a fire started. The remote camping sites on Rock Island are pretty well spaced out. Sites C, D, and E are grouped together, but there's probably 100 yards between each site. There's not a real trail connecting the three sites directly, but enough people have walked along the ridge between the three sites that there's an obvious path. As I was setting some sticks up in my fire ring, something caught my eye and I looked up. Fairly far away, it looked like it might have been at Site D or a little further, was a person running in my direction. My first thought was, well, that's odd, because like I said, it's not even really a trail they were on. Then my mind just went to there must be something wrong and this person needs help. They got a little closer and it looked like maybe it was a woman in loose gray clothes, maybe in a hoodie. It was still far enough away that I couldn't really make out any details. I quickly stood up from the crouching position I was in and just as I did, I heard that high-pitched squill noise again. It was behind me and it was much closer this time. This startled me quite a bit, so I turned around to look behind me. I scanned the trees for a couple seconds, but didn't see or hear anything. I turned back around because I knew the running person must be getting close. But now, they were gone. Again, I stood there and scanned the trees, but did not see them anywhere. I was so confused I was kind of frozen for a few seconds. It was all very strange, but I was able to reason it out in my head that it was just a fellow camper from Site C or D that was maybe running to the pit toilet that was a couple hundred yards west of the sites. I tried to forget about it, but it was really just bothering me. I did not like whatever that squill noise was, and I just felt strange. With some effort, I decided to let it go and start at my fire. I had a quick meal and a couple adult beverages, then decided to take a little walk. I hadn't seen sites C or D yet, so I thought I would check those out and see if I did have some neighbors camping nearby. Site D was empty. I did see the path that led from that site to the main trail and pit toilet, so that made me feel a little less uneasy about the runner. I felt it was maybe someone from Site C that took a strange way to get to the main trail by going through Site D. It didn't make a ton of sense because I probably still should have seen them, but it made me feel better. I continued on to Site C and saw there was a tent set up. I really didn't want to bother anyone, but I just thought I would go over with the excuse that I would introduce myself as a camping neighbor from Site E and see if anyone looked like they might have been the person running earlier. I came up on the site and there was a couple sitting at the picnic table. Neither of them looked like they would have been the person I saw running. I introduced myself and they introduced themselves. They were probably in their mid-thirties. They were very nice and both seemed to be pretty drunk, but a quiet drunk. I didn't ask about the runner or the squealing noises because I thought it might be weird. I wished them a good night and walked back to my tent. 
When I got back, I had a cigar and a few more drinks. It got dark and it started as a perfect night. The sky was clear and I was just staring up and looking at millions of stars. I felt better about everything from earlier and felt stupid about the whole thing and decided to get some sleep. It was a long day so I fell asleep almost immediately. At around 2.30 a.m., I woke up by a huge boom of thunder. It started downpouring. The wind picked up and the temperature dropped. I love camping in the rain, but I do not like camping in a lightning storm. A pretty big storm came through and I was starting to worry. The wind was whipping at my tent and the ground was shaking from the thunder and lightning. I did not feel good about being out there in a tent and felt very exposed. The storm lasted for about an hour before it became just a light, steady drizzle. I was just starting to fall back asleep when I heard the squeal noise again. I opened my eyes up wide in the dark and just laid there silent. There was another louder squeal noise and it was pretty close. I knew there are no real dangerous animals on Rock Island. There are deer and porcupines, but nothing like bear or wolves. Knowing that still didn't make me feel any better. There was just something about that squill that I didn't like. I say squill because that's the best I can describe it. It sounded to me like a pig squill. I honestly don't know that much about pig noises, but that's what I thought of when I heard it. An injured or angry pig squill. I continued to lay in my tent and started to hear footsteps outside my tent. It was still raining, so the sounds were a little buried in the sound of rain, but it definitely sounded like a somewhat large animal or human walking around. I sat up in my tent and took a knife I had out just to feel better. In my head, I kept saying, You know it's just an animal, it's fine, there's nothing in these woods that can hurt you. I listened as the footsteps started moving away from my tent. I just sat there being still, holding my knife for maybe ten minutes without hearing anything else. I started thinking to myself, it's fine, it was just an animal, you're being stupid, and you really need to get some sleep. I was just about to lay back down when there was a very loud squill, and this time it was right outside my tent. It felt like my heart just stopped and a shiver went down my spine. My heart was beating so hard my entire body was pulsing, and I felt it in my ears. It took everything in me, but I forced out a, Get out of here! Not shouting, but as stern and mean sounding as I could at that moment. I didn't hear any more squeals or footsteps that night, but I also didn't sleep. I just sat there in my tent for maybe an hour before I laid down. Eventually, the rain stopped and I kept laying there until the sun came up. All that time reassuring myself that I was being stupid. It was just an animal. It was probably 7 a.m. before I decided I had to get out of my tent to relieve myself. As soon as I stepped outside my tent... I saw that my picnic table had been turned over and was upside down. 
When I saw this, I surprisingly calmly thought, Okay, this is enough. I'm leaving the island today. I checked my surroundings and nothing else seemed out of place. I eventually reasoned with myself that the wind had blown the table over during the storm. It still seemed a little strange because the table was pretty heavy and I felt like I would have heard the table flipping over. But that might have made sense. I made some cold instant coffee, had a bite to eat, started to feel better about the whole thing, then decided to go for a hike. I admit, I get easily scared when I'm camping by myself in the woods. Maybe that's natural. After I had some coffee and food and the sun came out, I realized that nothing I heard or saw was really anything that couldn't be explained. Other than not getting a good night's sleep, I was having a pretty good time. The reason I came to the island in the first place was to hike the seven-mile Thordeson's Loop Trail that has a lot of interesting things to see, and I was excited to start the hike. I packed a few things in my backpack and started off. Fairly close to my site is the water tower. I had no idea how it originally worked or why it had to be a tower, but it's an impressive building with a fireplace that looked like someone had recently had a fire in it. A little further down the trail was a cemetery where two sisters and a few others are buried. It's believed there are still more buried here in unmarked graves. These likely are some of the settlers from the old fishing village. The island has three cemeteries. There is one by the beach, and that's where Chester Thordeson was buried. There's one on the eastern part of the island where the two sisters are buried, and there's one on the northern part of the island where the original lighthouse keeper, David E. Corbin, is buried. There is also at least one Potawatomi burial area on the island, but no one knows exactly where that is. I kept walking on the trail until I came to a nice scenic overlook area with a bench where I sat down and drank some water. I started to hear some talking on the trail ahead of me, but I couldn't see anyone yet. There was a bend in the trail and the trees were thick, so I sat on the bench waiting for these people to come around the bend. The voices were coming closer, and I could tell that they weren't speaking English but I couldn't place what language it might have been. But both voices were very, very deep and guttural. Then, back deep in the woods, I hear a loud and quick, Ooh, ooh. Immediately, both the voices I was listening to responded with their own, Ooh, 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 ooh. I kind of smiled because it sounded like these two heard whatever it was in the woods and they were trying to be funny and mock it by responding. I got off the bench, put my backpack on, and started walking in the direction further down the trail where the voices were coming from, but I never did find these people. The rest of the hike went very well. I visited the cemetery where David E. Corbin is buried. I took a self-guided tour of the Potawatomi lighthouse. I passed the wooden gate that apparently used to be part of a larger structure. 
I walked by the great hall and dock area from where I arrived on the island. I also visited some of the other structures on the island. Came across the cemetery where Chester Thordeson is buried. Then finished the loop by returning to my campsite. It was a very nice hike with a lot to see and wasn't especially difficult, but I was tired. I did walk down to campsite C to ask the couple I spoke with the night before how they did with the storm during the night, but they had packed up and left. I was disappointed because I also really wanted to ask them about the squealing noises during the night. The rest of the evening was pretty uneventful. I built a fire, made some meals, had a cigar and some drinks. As soon as it got dark, I was ready for bed since I had so little sleep the night before. I got in my tent and quickly fell asleep. I might have been asleep for about three hours when I woke up suddenly and was immediately fully alert. Nothing that I was aware of caused me to wake up, but I felt something was wrong. I sat up in my tent and this part is a little hard to explain. A feeling of complete dread washed over me. It was unlike anything I had ever felt before. It felt like there was something in the tent with me, and I could feel that it was angry, seething with anger, rage, full even, and I could feel its hatred for me. It felt like something very bad was about to happen, and I couldn't do anything about it. I started to shiver uncontrollably. There was a smell of garbage or rotten meat and it got stronger and stronger to the point where I wanted to throw up, but couldn't because I was frozen. I had never felt so exposed and helpless. I stared forward at nothing, just frozen, and the weird thing is, I accepted whatever was about to happen to me. It was like my brain telling me that whatever is about to happen, even if it's death, will at least be relief. Then, I passed out. At least I have to assume I passed out. That's all I remember until I woke up at about 8 a.m. that morning. When I woke up, I was laying outside of my sleeping bag, on top of it, and my legs were in an unnatural and uncomfortable position. I was on my back with my left leg straight out, and my right leg was bent so that my foot was up against my left knee. My heart started pounding, but I kept thinking to myself, It was a dream. I'm leaving right now. It was a dream. I'm leaving right now. I packed up everything very quickly and started back towards the dock to catch the first boat off the island. Since the first boat from Washington Island doesn't arrive until about 10.30 a.m., I had a little time to kill around the Great Hall and dock area. I wanted to get off that island so bad, but I did feel a little better just being out of the woods and I could see other people. I sat down on a bench a little to the east of the dock and lit a cigar just to give me something to do while trying not to think about the night before. I was sitting a few minutes and scanning out over the water when I was startled by someone behind me saying, Hi. I jumped and was embarrassed when the person came around saying, Oh, uh, sorry, 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 I, I didn't mean to scare you. 
I saw you smoking and just came over to ask you if you had a lighter. I felt like an idiot and told him that's fine. I just didn't sleep well last night and was kind of zoned out, and I handed him my lighter. He thanked me, lit a cigarette, then handed the lighter back to me. We started talking about the usual things you might talk about. He said he was from the Madison area. We talked about the storms we've been having. He seemed to be a real outdoorsy kind of guy and talked about his plans to move to Washington Island. It was a nice normal conversation and kind of took my mind off the night I just had for a little bit. He seemed like a pretty nice guy. Then, naturally, he asked me what site I had been staying at. I told him I was staying at Site E the last two nights, and he said he usually books that site, but I must have reserved it before him. He said that he booked Site D the last two nights. I was surprised by this because no tent or anything was at Site D the two times I walked past that site. I told him this, and he said he comes to the island a few times a year, and you have to book a site, but he actually camps at different areas on the island. I asked him where he camps, and he told me most of the time he camps in the East Cemetery, but he also likes to camp in the woods south of the lighthouse. He told me that he hikes about halfway down to Fernwood Trail and just heads north into the woods where he finds a place to camp. He said that one time he found the ruins of a small log house in those woods, and he's going to try and find it again and camp inside of it. At this point, I started to change my opinion about this guy and wanted to change the subject, but then he asked me if I had heard the screeches in the woods. I took a second to reply and knew he was talking about the squealing I had heard. I told him I had and asked him if he knew what it was. This time, he took a second to reply, and I saw his face change. He looked as if he was thinking if he should tell me something, like a secret, with no expression at all on his face. He said matter-of-factly, A demon lives on this island. Under any other circumstances, I would have laughed this off, but... Not after what I experienced the night before. He looked at me and must have seen the anxiety and fear I was feeling. He surprised me by letting out a quick laugh. He asked me if I saw anything that night. I told him I hadn't seen anything, and he stared at me like he was trying to figure something out. I felt like he could tell I had experienced something. At this point, I was ready for the conversation to be over. Then, he told me he had seen something in the cemetery that night. Now his face and mood kind of changed again, like he was trying to confide in me. I really did not want to ask the question, but I knew he wanted me to ask it. So, I asked him what he saw in the cemetery, but my voice was shaky. Then, I could tell he had changed his mind about telling me. He actually looked at me with empathy and told me that what he saw was hard to explain. But if I was afraid of the screeching noises, he didn't think I should go near the cemetery. I didn't say anything right away, but he said four words without any context. 
Keepers of the Flame. I looked at my cigar and the ash was long. I put it out and told him I was going to wait by the dock for the boat. He nodded and I started to walk away. After a few steps, he said, Hey, and I turned around to look at him. He just said, Don't come back here. I turned around and started walking again. I don't know if that was a warning or a friendly suggestion, but I took it to heart. I was definitely not coming back to Rock Island. When I got home, I looked up Keepers of the Flame, as it pertained to Rock Island. I found three things that he could have been referring to. The name of the Native Americans that lived on the island, the Potawatomi, could be translated to Keepers of the Flame. The lighthouse keepers on the island were sometimes referred to as the Keepers of the Flame. Then, there was also a 19th century cult that was said to visit the island from time to time that called themselves the Keepers of the Flame. I know that hundreds of people visit Rock Island every year and have a great time camping, hiking the trails and exploring Chester Thordeson's buildings. My humble suggestion is this. Do not go to Rock Island. And that, dear listeners, is the end of these true backwood creepy stories. If you are sleeping, I hope Slumberland is treating you kindly. If you are awake, I hope you've enjoyed this collection. Until next time, I'll read to you soon. Have yourself a good morning, a good afternoon, or a good night.